0: Part of introducing these two chapters is to either review with you or introduce you to a theological (coughs) concept, and that is God's providence. So um, let me do that because perhaps (coughs) if you want to, from this particular uh, vantage point of studying chapter 27 and 28, you really do see God's providence at work here. Now, sometimes we say God's sovereignty and providence, but they are two distinctly different things. And so what I want to zero in on as we perhaps just take a look at this uh, is um, make sure you understand what it means. God's providence is a term that is used in theology to make sure we don't see God as kind of an absentee landlord or a perfect clockmaker type of God. I don't know if you know what I mean by those metaphors. Where you say, well, God creates everything, God sets everything to work on his perfect natural law, and he's really not involved too much after that. That is not true, that is not biblical, but there are many people who hold to that, whether they can even talk about it in that way or not. God is intimately involved in his world. And so his providence means that he sustains his creation. In other words, he makes sure that every part of his created world is functioning the way he wants it to function. He sustains it. What maintains everything about the stability of the world in which we live? The answer to that is God. But also as a part of God's providence, he accomplishes his purposes in space-time history. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not a disconnected He's a He's not a disconnected God. He's very connected, and very involved in accomplishing his purposes. And here you see that in chapters 27 particularly. Because God had told Paul, you are going to go to Rome. And as you go through this void, you start to, well, is, is he going to get killed? Is that shipwreck going to cause him to die? I mean, all that. And Paul is absolutely confident that he's going to go to Rome. And no matter how severe the storm is, he keeps telling everyone on ship, don't worry, don't fret, don't be anxious. God told me I'm going to Rome and you just happen to be going along and you're going to be saved too. I mean, it's that kind of remarkable faith and confidence in not only God's sovereignty, God rules, but God's providentially involved. So I guess to make sure that you're with me, do you understand if I ask you to summarize in your own words what providence means, would you be able to do it? I think so. All right, good. <laughs> I won't ask you to do that, but you know that start doing that, I'll, I'll empty the class. So, have
1: you heard that providence is sort of a
2: subset or something of God's sovereignty?
0: Yes, yes, it's an aspect of God's sovereignty. Yes, it, it really is. It doesn't, it's not a synonym for sovereignty, but it's an aspect or a subset or a dimension of his sovereignty. Uh, let me, the reason why this is important to me is uh, a number of years ago, a Christian sociologist was writing about young adults, the millennials, trying to help Christian leaders understand millennials. He said many millennials today, their view of God is a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God you have to go through each one of those labels but uh, his name is christian smith he's really onto something that's where most people really are mm-hmm. a moralistic therapeutic deistic god you know a moralistic there are morals and they're important therapeutic i only go to god when i really need him and deistic he really isn't providentially involved very much I'm so free and I'm so autonomous and I'm so responsible that I'm really the captain of my own ship. I only go to him when I have a severe need, kind of like a therapist. And so that's, to me, that's really important because, I mean, I've worked with millennials, a good part of my young adults, a good part of my life, and I was very interested in that in those latter years I was in leadership because we were starting to see a significant change in the the way in which young people were coming to a school like ours and approaching God and thinking about God because that's what's being taught in many of the churches. And that's, that's the kind of perspective they have about God. You can't read chapter 27 of, April, uh, of Acts and come away with a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God. This is a God that's sovereign and providentially involved in his world to accomplish his purposes. And uh, so from that vantage point, let's get started. Now, again, there are a lot of place names here. So I'm going to kind of just read through this fairly quickly. If you're really interested, I gave you a map on page 11. You can chart the way in which they're going. The, the time frame for Acts 27 and 28, 28 is the last chapter of the book, is August of A.D. 59 through February of A.D. 60. So again, I'll I'll give you those dates, August of 59 through February of 60. Now, if you are really thinking about that, and you look at that, there's winter months. And they are the worst months to travel in the Mediterranean. So, Paul and Luke and the others who are with them, and these sailors, they are choosing to Go in the Mediterranean Sea to head for Rome in the worst month of the year to do so. These are the winter months. And this is when the Mediterranean Sea is the most dangerous in terms of storms, and I mean lethal, severe storms. And I, again, I mean, whether that's of interest to you or not, it's very significant that you put all that together, because again, God's providence is real here. God said to Paul, you are going to go to Rome. I want you in Rome. And so Paul's confidence and trust in God is based on that promise. It doesn't matter what happens. No matter how severe the storm or whatever, Paul is confident he's going to Rome and he tells everybody, don't be afraid. We are going to survive this. And so it's kind of neat. And it was decided that we, please, now I'm in verse 1 of chapter 27, the we is first person plural. That includes Luke the one who wrote this, this this book. We decided to set sail for Italy. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, I don't know if you're interested in that, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. Here again, you see how specific the historian Luke is being. He's telling us which part of one of the legions of the Roman Empire stationed in Syria is guarding Paul and taking him on this journey, and he names it one of the cohort. A cohort is a thousand soldiers. It was a soldier, a thousand soldier unit named the Augustan cohort, named Julius. So you can see names there that you know, Augustus, Julius, Julius Caesar, very famous names. So what is that telling us? Luke's just telling us he's under the care of a thousand soldiers of the Roman legions that are stationed up in Syria. And embarking in a ship of Adramnitium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Thessalonica. By the way, Aristarchus is mentioned twice in scripture. He's mentioned in Colossians 4.10, and he's mentioned in Philemon, that little tiny book, Philemon, verse 24. So he also accompanies them on this journey. Verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon. Again, if you're looking on the map, they're traveling up along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the eastern Mediterranean. They're sailing in that safe direction, to protect them from the stormy weathers of the eastern Mediterranean winter, because the winds were against us. Verse 5, And we had sailed across the open sea, across the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra in Lycia. And again, if you look at the map, they sailed up along the eastern coast on the north shore of, of Cyprus, and now they're way over here. It's just, Duke is just telling you exactly the direction they're sailing. There, then Centurion found this ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Let's stop there for just a minute. They're in the port city of Myra, and the Centurion, Roman military officer in charge of Paul, says, there's a much larger ship, a much safer ship that I'm going to put you on. It's a grain ship from Alexandria. Alexandria, if you let your eye go down, is that major, major port city on the Nile Delta. And the grain would be, you know, perhaps wheat, maybe corn, from along the Nile River. It's all gone to Rome, (coughs) because Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. So this was a large ship loaded with grain, and it was not unusual, as was the practice in the Roman Empire, to put lots of passengers, lots of prisoners on these ships, are large, that can handle the weight. And so now Paul is on a grain ship from Alexandria. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under Lee of Crete off Selmon. And again, Crete is another island farther west of Cyprus, but a much larger island. And again, they're sailing going to sail around the island of Crete. That's all Luke is telling us. Verse 8, coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lycia. And you, can, again, can see that they're on the south side of the island of Crete. Since months' time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, like in other words, the sea is becoming more turbulent, and probably what Paul's referring to there is the Day of Atonement, the fast, the Day of Atonement that was associated with the Jewish holiday. He's just charting the importance of, of the Jewish holidays and how they're organizing their trip. Paul advised them, Sirs, verse 10, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and of ship, but also of lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot's. And to the owner of the ship, than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, and on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. Now, Phoenix is on the very western side of the island of Crete. Now, do you understand what's going on there? Paul says, This is too dangerous. Don't go. Let's stay here for the winter. But the Roman centurion and the pilot of the ship said, no, we can handle it. So they set out further into the sea. And that's what's going to cause them getting caught in this tremendous storm. And that's what will start here in verse 13. I told you we're just going from place name to place name to place name. You still with me? All right, let's pick up in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently... Supposing that they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Creek close to the shore. Now that's good as the south wind is blowing, not the north wind. But soon a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I used to live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and we used to talk in the wintertime of the nor'easters, the storms that would come up along the coast and just be loaded with moisture from the Gulf and meet these major systems coming from the north, you have a big snowstorm. It was always glorious. <laughs> Struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of the small island of Cowda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And hoisting it up, they used the support to undergird the ship. And fearing that they would run aground onto Siretis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They're just throwing off the extra cargo to lessen the weight. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard and no small uh, with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Why tell us neither sun nor stars appeared? They couldn't figure out where they were. That's how you determined where you were, using an astrolabe or compass. They couldn't figure out exactly where they were. So they're about to be abandoned. This is a very serious situation. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And not sailed, not have set sail from Crete, and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong, whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must first run aground on some on this on some island. So you have this extraordinary testimony of the Apostle Paul to these pagan sailors. Don't be afraid, don't worry, trust me, because I'm trusting in God. We are not going to die. And by the way, you should have listened to me in the first place. <laughs> It wasn't because he was involved in sailing ships. Other than other than perhaps knowing that he uh, was arrested and charged for religious reasons back in Caesarea, he had no credibility with these people. I mean he didn't. They didn't know anything about it. He had no credibility with them. Does this remind you of any Old Testament book? Jonah. Doesn't this remind you a little bit of Jonah? Now I mean, Jonah was not faithful uh, to the Lord until near the end. But here, I mean, it's just really something. Paul is speaking to these pagan sailors, the God whom I belong, to whom I belong, and whom I worship. He told me that I'm going to get to Rome, and everybody's going to survive that's with me. So this is an example of God's providence. He is going to accomplish his purposes, regardless of however you look at it. And these pagan sailors on this Roman grain ship from Alexandria know what storms in the eastern Mediterranean are like. So they have a choice. Do I listen to Paul? Or don't I listen to Paul? And in the context of what is about to happen, most of them listen to Paul. And they will survive. All right. should we continue? Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, that'd be the 14th night of their journey. So they'd been at sea for two weeks. As we were being drawn across the Adriatic Sea, now the Adriatic Sea is that—that's a name for that whole western area there. About midnight, the sailors suspected we were nearing land. So they took a sounding, uh, you throw a line overboard to, to see how close you are to the shore, <laughs> And found it was 20 fathoms deep. A little farther they took another sounding, 15 fathoms. What's that telling them? They're Getting closer and closer to the shore. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for a day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying our anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and sail soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. They trusting Paul? Mm -hmm. They're trusting what Paul's saying. Verse thirty three. As they were about to, as it was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you continue in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God. And in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Who's directing the events on this Roman grain ship? The captain, the centurion, the pilot, or Paul? Paul is God. Well, and that's what I was just going to say. And in fact, Paul is God. Because Paul's trust and confidence is in God. God told him, you are going to Rome. And so because God had declared that, Paul knew whatever events that were going to occur as he gets from here, that is Caesarea to here, Rome, God's going to take care of him. He's trusting in God's providence, that God is going to accomplish the purposes that he has clearly stated to Paul. And I mean, it's just a, I mean it's just a, it's just a remarkable summary of, that Luke's giving us here. Paul is really directing events on this Roman grain ship because he trusts in God, and his faith and trust and confidence in God is spilling over unto these other sailors. And even, look, if you look at verse 35, which I just read. He even goes so far as to live a witness in thanking the Lord for the food, blessing it, breaking and beginning to eat. How many are we talking about? Verse 36. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. <coughs> Excuse me. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Whoa. This is a Roman grain ship. They're emptying all the grain pretty much into the Mediterranean. By the way, we know exactly what these Roman grain ships were like. They could hold as many as 600 men. So this, they got about half a number, the number that they could normally hold. But this is a very severe storm that they're about. And now, what starts with in verse 39, uh, if you are looking in the map, we're going to be at the island of Malta. And you can see, again, I'm using my, but just keep going farther and farther west. It's a tiny little island off the coast of Sicily, at the tip of the boot there in Italy. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed the bay with the beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudder, hoisting their foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow, that's the front of the ship, struck and remained immovable. The stern, that's the back of the ship, was being broken up by the surf. So the front of the ship is on the shore, but there are rocks and shoals, and the storm is just beating the stern of the ship into pieces. And when they had eaten, uh, where am I, lost my, uh, verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, which is the normal practice. A Roman, if you're guarding Roman prisoners, and it looks like they're going to escape, kill them. Because they escape, you are accountable for that, and you could lose your life. Verse 43. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out the plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planked or on pieces of ship. Can you get the picture? If you can't swim, you grab a hold of a piece of wood, which is going to float, and that gets you to the shore. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. Did Paul tell them they were going to be brought safely to the land? Yes, in the midst of this tempestuous, horrible storm, what Paul had said. God is protecting Paul and also all 275 of the others on that ship because of Paul. Okay, we did, that's got to be a record in this class. We did one chapter in about 11 minutes, (laughs) which I don't think that's ever happened in the history of this Bible study. But I mean, I didn't, unless you want me to and go back, I didn't want to get bogged down in all these place names. But Luke, that's why this is a very trustworthy account. Luke is giving us a great amount of detail About this voyage, and by the way, if you were to get on a plane and go to Malta, uh, off the coast of Sicily, they have a lot of monuments and statues and things alluding to this set of events. Mm -hmm. They celebrated because that put Malta on the map. Mm -hmm. That, and of course, the Maltese Falcon that Humphrey Bogart starred in a number of years later. (laughs) If you don't know that, all right. All right, can I go into chapter twenty-eight? Any questions? uh, Yes, Jim.
2: I don't know if it's a question or observation, but I mean, apparently God was very clear to Paul that he was going to Rome. Absolutely. Which gave him absolute assurance of God's sovereignty and or providence in this situation. But a lot of us as we go through life don't have that clear, absolute <coughs> And so for some of us, there's a, there's a bit more faith involved in mm-hmm. trusting in the events that happen to us because we don't really know I mean, you know what I'm, what I'm trying. I do. Mm-hmm. We don't you know an absolute thing. This is Jim. You're going to be here, and you're going to do this someday. Mm-hmm. So it makes it a little bit more of a faith issue to trust what happens in life.
0: Yes, uh, I mean you're you're right. I mean this is a very this is even for Paul. This is a bit unique. God's been very very specific about this point in his life. This is where you're going to end up in Rome and. Trust me with that, that's what's going to happen. But I think for you and me, although I think sometimes God can be specific in guiding us a place or vocation or direction or whatever, for the most part, you're right. Um, So let's take just a quick moment. Even though we perhaps do not have the level of certainty that Paul had, he knew geographically he was going to go to Rome, what builds your confidence and your capacity to trust God for your future?
2: Well, I mean, in part, we have his promise of his engagement in life. Good. For me, at least the older I get, the more often I can look back and see his faithfulness and things that I thought might be a reverse of in an amazing way. So, I mean, I see
0: all of those kinds of things. Well, Jim and I had this all rehearsed. He was going to ask this question. and I was great. But he, he answers the two key things. And you see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament, particularly when God is speaking to Israel. What does he say? Trust me for your future because I brought you out of the land of Egypt and I took you through the wilderness for 40 years. My past faithfulness in your life gives you the capacity to trust me for your future. Because I took care of you in the past. Do you think I'm not going to take care of you in the future? And the second uh, item, as Jim uh, mentioned also, are the promises of God. What did Jesus say right before he goes back to the Father? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I mean, those promises, plus then all of the promises about our future, of being with him and his coming kingdom and populating the new heaven and new earth, getting the new resurrected, glorified bodies, all of those promises are also part of our destiny. That's where we're headed. But we maybe don't have the specificity that Paul had that in terms of getting there in eternity, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. We may not have that same level of specificity. But because God's faithfulness in the past is evident and his promises about the future, I can trust him for tomorrow and for next week and next month. Um, there are so many instances in our lives where whether or even necessarily thinking that specifically, because God was faithful to me last week in almost an identical situation. Will he be faithful for this week? Yes. Yes. Saul, Fred. Uh, you know,
1: uh, each one of us, uh, God leads us. If we ask him to lead us, with us peace about the decisions that we're uh, making in the future. And that's because he, like... He had for Paul has a purpose for each one of our lives. We think, oh, I'm not Paul, but I'm not so-and-so. But God is making us who we are, and as faithful servants, our testimony, and leading and sharing Christ will lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, could use that one? And like yeah. you said. You know, I don't see a sermon, or hear a sermon, and uh, but sometimes God, you know, if we all look back, how faithful, how very faithful He has been to each one of us mm-hmm. in ways that we at that time would not never have thought of it as we think now looking back.
0: That's right. All right. We have one more chapter. By the way, uh, I think Fred's already sent it out. We are going to start our study of the book of Hebrews. So um, if you haven't downloaded it yet or whatever you do with it, you might want to start to think about that because I'm pretty sure next week we're going to get into Hebrews. The rate we're going, I think we might even possibly finish this because it's a quarter after. A half hour with this class, we can get a lot done. Let's look at chapter 28, the last book, sorry, the last chapter of this book. Now they're on Malta. They're on on Malta. It's about 58 miles south of Sicily. So it isn't real far. Where are we in time? We're in about October of AD 59. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people um, that is not the best translation, but meaning the people who lived there showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had been begun to rain and was cold. As I told you, the months that they're doing, these are the winter months in the Mediterranean. I mean it is, it is very difficult uh, in those months. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on fire, a viper, what's a viper? a snake, a poisonous snake, came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And his is Paul's hand. Now, I want to, I want to explain something here because Greco-Roman mythology has a lot to say about these kinds of things. If sailors escape shipwrecks, Only be killed by poisonous snakes. That's evidence of the gods' justice. So the natives of Malta know that Paul and these guys had escaped the shipwreck and are safely on the island, but now a viper latches on Paul's hand. Greco-Roman way of thinking, what are they thinking? Now the gods are going to take care of him. He escaped the shipwreck. But now the viper, the poisonous snake, acting on behalf of the gods, will carry out God, the god's justice. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. In other words, this is a Greco-Roman mythological way of looking at what's happening. So, is the Greco-Roman mythological lore of what's happening the right way to look at this? No, because when the native people saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. See how they're thinking? They were then waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead, but when they waited a long time and so misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he's a god. It's a Greco-Roman mythological way of trying to explain what happened. But what is it telling us from the vantage point of genuine biblical Christianity? Greco-Roman mythological lore is not the way to look at this. Paul represents the living God, and the living God taking taken care of him. Now, in the neighborhood of that place where land belonging to the chief man of the island, his name was Publius, that's a very common Latin name and title, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, what is called the Malta fever. It's called that still today. And Paul visited and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when they had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came and were cured. They honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. These are the last messianic miracles. In the book of Acts. Does that sentence make sense to you? I hope it does because we talked about that throughout the book. The last Messianic miracles in the book of Acts. Paul is representing Jesus on the island of Malta, countering, in living it out, countering the Greco Roman mythological way of looking at things. And even to the extent of the Holy Spirit giving him the power and capability to bring healing. So, we're now almost to the point where Paul is in Rome. But this, it's, by the way, again, I said this, but if you go to Malta today, all of this stuff is really celebrated. There are statues and stories and. Little shops, you can uh, purchase things about Paul and the snake and the viper. All of this, it's really, these little rubber vipers you can buy and the viper that struck Paul and all that. All right, after three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. We're now in February of AD 60. We're at the end of the journey. But they pick up another grain ship, but it's really interesting that... Um, Luke, again, he's telling us this ship at the front had two gods, two Greco-Roman gods on the front of the ship. That's what he's telling us. Putting in at Syracuse, you can see that on the map. That's in Sicily. We stayed there for three days. And from there we made circuit and arrived at Regium. And after that, a south wind sprang up. And the second day we came to Putuloi. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. There we found brothers. What does that mean? There we found brothers. Believers. Believers. So that's telling you that Christianity has permeated this whole area long before Paul showed up. And so they're taking care of Paul. They stay with them for seven days. And what's going to happen now is Paul in Putaloi, Paul is on land. Now he's going to walk to Rome. He's not going to be on the sea anymore. He's going to walk to Rome. It's a long journey, but he's going to walk. And there we found brothers were invited to stay for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about this, came as far as Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. That's all associated with the city of Rome. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. The total journey took about four months from when they left Caesarea till that time they get to Rome. Now, remember, and that just reminded us of this at the end of verse 16. Remember, Paul's a prisoner. Right? I mean, just remember that. He's a prisoner. <laughs> He's a prisoner of the Roman Empire. And from Rome's perspective, as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, why is he in Rome? To, to appear to Caesar. He's appealed to Caesar. He's going to take his case to Caesar. But he is, don't forget, he is a Roman prisoner. Are you still with me? You are going to finish the book of Acts today. I'm more excited about that than almost anything else that's happened this day. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. Does that surprise you? shouldn't surprise you. Paul always testified the gospel of the gospel to Jews first. There were about, at this point in time, there were close to 50,000 Jews who lived in Rome. Now, greater Rome at this time, is a population of about a million. I'm talking about not just the little city, along there, but the greater Rome, all around it. There are, We know of 11 synagogues in Rome in AD 60. So it makes sense that Paul would want to speak to the Jewish leaders of the synagogue. What is he going to do? He's going to explain to them again that Jesus is the Messiah. I have put my faith in him as a loyal, faithful, pharisaic Jew. I want you to do the same. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Verse 18. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. He's summarizing what had occurred back in Jerusalem and in Caesarea. Verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Stop there. Underline the hope of Israel. What's that referring to? To Jesus. It is an Old Testament phrase that appears multiple places in the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah. So he's saying to these Jewish leaders of the 11 synagogues in Rome in A.D. 60, I'm here because of the hope of Israel. So alerting them to this premise, the Messiah has come, the Messiah is Jesus, and I put my faith in him. And so it's a remarkable final testimony of Paul to Jewish leaders, at least in terms of the ministry that's recorded for us in the book of Acts. And they said to him, in verse 21, We have received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. What sect? S-E-C-T. The way. The way. So even in the Jewish synagogues in Rome, they've heard about the way. And Paul's here. We didn't hear from Judea. The brothers of Sanhedrin tell us, but we've heard about the way, Paul. So we're excited to hear what you have to teach us. Verse 23. When they appointed a day for him, they came to him as lodging. Paul is under a house arrest kind of situation. His greater numbers, from morning till evening, he expounded to them. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. Uh, I'll repeat that. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. Would you sit under somebody's teaching from morning till evening? But I mean, they're enthralled by what this man is telling them. Testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, again, just, you, you, that's not hard to, to understand what he's doing. Paul is looking at all the major Old Testament texts that speak about the coming of the Messiah and saying, he's come, he's here. Jesus, this, Jesus fulfills all this stuff. But what about the kingdom of God? Testifying to the kingdom of God, what would that be about? You can understand about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets how all of those prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. But what's this kingdom of God stuff? You know, well, and because Messiah is associated with the coming kingdom of God. And so he's probably, the kingdom of God, he's probably talking about a lot of those messianic kingdom passages in the book of Isaiah. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Mm-hmm. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember that? Even you and I, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, I mean, if you pray the Lord's Prayer, or if you've ever been in a situation you praying the Lord's Prayer, you're praying for the coming of the kingdom. You see, God is reestablishing his kingdom rule on this rebellious planet. That's earth. This rebellious planet. This planet's in rebellion against God. Does this planet bow under the sovereignty of God? No. They will. But every time someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, this is the words in, in, in Paul of Paul in Colossians, they're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's just an amazing little thread that goes throughout the Bible. The kingdom rule of God is being reestablished on planet Earth. That's why it's so important to understand Jesus is the Messiah, the king, the Davidic king. He's here. Remember, remember the words of Jesus? It tells us in Matthew and in Mark, as John the Baptist and Jesus being, begin their preaching ministry, what's the summary of their preaching? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Remember that? Three of you are shaking your head. Yeah. You remember that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kingdom language. And the kingdom language is always associated with the king, which is Jesus. If the king's here, the kingdom is being established. God's rule and planet Earth is being reestablished. The rebels are being cowered. They're being brought under the submission of Jesus Christ. And every time somebody trust Christ, Satan loses another citizen of his kingdom. So it's great theology here. I would have loved to have heard what he was teaching these people. And some were convinced, verse 24, by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. Here's that statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, So what Paul does here is very very similar to what Jesus does. Paul takes language of Isaiah chapter 6 and applies it to the Jews in A.D. 60 from the synagogues in Rome. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they barely hear. Their eyes they have closed Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. In Isaiah's day, the heart, mind, and ears of the Jewish people were closed. Paul is saying, those of you who refuse to believe, your heart, your mind, and your ears are closed, just like your ancestors were 700 B.C. when Isaiah was teaching. Jesus quotes this as well. You, you have ears to hear, you're not hearing. You have eyes to see, you're not seeing. You have hearts to accept, you're not hardened. And so Paul is quoting that very important messianic passage that Isaiah used and saying you're fulfilling that too. You hear the truth, but your ears are blocked, your heart is hard, and your eyes are blind. You won't see the obvious. And what's the obvious that Jesus is the Messiah, that the kingdom has come, the king is here. and so on. All
1: right? So that's not really a great way to win friends and influence people in terms of the Jews that were. That's right.
0: I mean, he's categorically laying it out that you are some did believe, but that you those of you who did not believe, you're just like what Isaiah said in Isaiah 60. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, verses nine and 10. Your hearts are hardened, your eyes are blind, your ears are plugged up. doesn't matter what I say or what I do, you are not going to respond. That's why when you read Isaiah's commissioning, uh, as, as and this is chapter 6 is is where he's commissioned, God says, I'm sending you to Judah and I'm sending you to Israel, but I want to tell you, Isaiah, nobody's going to listen to you. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be an encouraging assignment? For the rest of your life, you're going to proclaim the truths about the coming Messiah and and, and all that I'm doing on planet Earth. But, oh, by the way, Isaiah, no one is going to listen to you. That would not be real encouraging. When I come into this room for the study, I'm assuming that you will listen. I'm kidding. Uh,
1: Is Isaiah part of the book, one of the books that the current Jews will reference today?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, all of all of the books of the Old Testament, they divide they divide the Old Testament differently than than you do, but definitely yes. Yeah, Isaiah is a very important book to them, particularly the Orthodox Jew. But yeah, Isaiah, am I answering your question? Yeah, that's, okay, that's right. it's a very important I mean, book I mean, to I, them. That's what I want to answer. Yeah, it's a very important, very important book. But they still
2: can't read the the law
0: mm-hmm. I mean, that what. Paul quoted here is exactly where so many are. It, I mean, it's like the evidence is so clear, but my heart is so hard, my eyes are blind, my ears are plugged up. I'm not going to believe. I I have a very dear dear friend in Israel. He's really a very close friend of mine, and when I, I would always spend time and every time I went to Israel, and I, I so many times he would say to me, "I know, I know what you're saying about Jesus, but I just won't believe." It. I mean, it just—I mean, the evidence is there. He understands the evidence, but I just won't believe. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just—I would just—I want to just shake him. I want to bounce him off the wall. I want to hit him with a two by four. But it's just—it's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. And it—and this is this can this can apply to non-Jews too. The evidence is so clear and so compiled. I still won't believe. I don't care what you say. I still will not believe. And it's that hardened heart, blind eyes, and plugged up ears. The Holy Spirit has to break that down.
1: Uh, there, were, there were some chapters back in Acts that, that we talked about how, how Luke had um, indicated that some had listened and, and believed. That's right. And some listened and didn't believe. That's right. And some of them wanted to
0: learn a little
1: yeah. bit more. Yeah. What, how many chapters back in that?
0: Oh, that's that's back to um, uh, Acts 15. No, Acts 17. That's back to Acts 17 in Athens. Yeah. That's good. We have a good memory. That's right. That's exactly right. Some, nope, won't believe. Some believe. And some, we want to hear more. <laughs> yeah. right. I, have a, I have a good friend who is
2: having trouble believing um mm-hmm. He's uh, just a... One foot in the grave, and the other on a slightly slipped banana peel. Wow! And I, I convicted him, saying, "God is the shepherd, and ninety
0: nine are in the in the fold, and, and one is still out there, and, and he's out there looking for you." Yeah. I convicted him with that. Yeah. I just, left, I mean, yeah, that's good. That's you know, good. I,
2: they a yeah, yeah. The hounds of heaven are after him, Joel. Um. And I don't mean to get ahead, but then he does stay for two years and continues to talk and, right. and preach and so right. forth. And I guess the other thing I was going to ask is, in his own rented house, but he's still on house arrest, does that mean he literally has a, That's right. a guard That's right. with him? or Probably
0: two, probably okay. two, probably two. Okay.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. So they're a party to all these That's right. discussions and That's right. teaching, and That's they would have... Rotated through, six hour, or?
0: six hour shifts. Okay. Six hour shifts with Paul. Wait, we, I've we've joked about it before. Can you imagine? and you imagine being chained to Paul? You know, I mean, you're just. Oh no, I got Paul this week. Oh no, that's six hours of him talking about this Jesus guy. So you know, it just. Uh and that's why he does say in Philippians, uh, which was one of the prison epistles, he wrote Philippians when he was in prison here, he writes to <sighs> the members of the Praetorian Guard that are fathers of, God, of Christ. The Praetorian Guard is that elite guard chosen personally by Caesar. How did they hear about it?
1: So Paul? That would have been Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians.
0: And Philemon. Mm-hmm. That four, four prison epistles that's were written at this Jesus. period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the providence <laughs> of God. You got it. You got it.
1: Yes, Here's John?
2: Verse uh, 26 there, where it says, Go to this people and say, um, part of that says the Holy Spirit spoke the truth when he said through Isaiah the prophet. Mm-hmm. So when he's saying, who's he saying to, who's he telling go to this people and say?
0: This is, God is, God is saying this to Isaiah. Okay. And then Paul is quoting this and saying, The Holy Spirit is applying from 700 B.C. with Isaiah. It still applies to you guys today. You've got hardened hearts, plugged up ears, and blind eyes. doesn't matter what, you're not going to believe. But, okay. Verse 28, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. That's been the entire ministry of Paul since Acts 15. He's going to the Gentiles. And they have responded.
2: I think that's a Yiddish
0: a, a, a term called measuring. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Put
1: it, to
0: him. Put it to them. He lived there for two whole years, and Joel alludes to this a minute ago, this would be from February 60 to, to March of AD 62. He's in Rome. At his own expense, he's in a rented house, he's under house arrest, Welcome to all who came, proclaiming here again the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And, I mean, there's a summary. Now, the book of Acts is over. I want to ask a question. He's there for two whole years. Roman codified law in the Codex says that a prisoner that is appealed to Rome has two years. His accusers must come and he must stand before the Caesar. Now, we do not know. The book of Acts doesn't tell us anything about his trial. It doesn't tell us whether his accusers came to Rome to appear before the Caesar. We don't know. So the question is always this Was Paul released? Because this is the, what we just read, the book's over. We're done studying Acts. And you leave chapter 28 with a, la- a level of uncertainty. Was he released? I would say today, almost all New Testament scholars that I'm aware of agree that Paul was released. And huh? You know, he, that doesn't mean he didn't have a trial, but his accusers perhaps didn't come. And so, I mean, it was never finalized. And after two years, he's to be released. And he served for another six years. There is extra-biblical material, Irenaeus, uh, Ignatius, Uh, Tacitus, they're all very early uh, first century writers, talk about Paul being in Spain, about Paul being in the western Mediterranean. As a matter of fact, it is now pretty strong consensus that after Paul was released, he wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Because the geographical references in 1, 2 Timothy, and Titus do not fit with the other three missionary journeys. So in other words, there's a fourth missionary journey that is not recorded for us in the book of Acts, but is documented, I maybe should say more loosely, alluded to in the pastoral epistles. Uh, they are his last books, First and 2 Timothy and Titus. His last book was 2 Timothy, written probably two months before he was executed. Paul was executed in early A.D. 68 at the height of Nero's horrible persecution. Who is the other key apostle that Nero executed? Peter. Peter. Both Peter and Paul were executed very, very close to one another in time by Nero in Rome. And so uh, I'm, I'm going beyond Acts 28, but there is a pretty significant amount of extra biblical evidence plus what's in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus that Paul was released and served another five, six years in missionary uh, planning, church planning ministry in the western Mediterranean and came back up through Cyprus and is, is arrested in Illyricum which would be modern day Bosnia taken to Rome, put on trial and executed. Because he was a Roman citizen, how would he have been executed? Uh, the other, the other well, or by decapitation. Yeah. Yep. The wide the wide axe of the Roman uh, execute. Why wasn't he crucified? Because they didn't crucify Roman citizens. How was Peter executed? He was crucified because he was not a Roman citizen. And tradition has it that he was crucified upside down. He asked to be crucified upside down, according to tradition. What was his charge? Uh, Both both were guilty of sedition. uh, In in terms of why Rome executed them. Charged with the cause of the
2: fire of Rome.
0: Well, that, that came a little bit earlier, that, that, uh, but you, you are right. Nero blamed the, the fire that occurred and swept through a good part of Rome. He blamed it on the Christians. And he, actually, he had, along the Appian Way, he just had huge numbers of crosses where Christians were being crucified along the Appian Way. Um, he was not a very nice man. <laughs> But the first part of his rule was a pretty good but the last part, he went insane, he committed suicide. Nero, he was a, a pretty brutal man. Well, I rarely get to say this in this class, but we finished a book of the Bible, so that's really kind of interesting. started this, verse Acts Yeah. And you really see that. You do, don't you? That's the way you... Chapter. You do. You can outline the, the progress of the book of Acts from Acts eight. That's exactly right.